welcome back to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. From immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering, and much more. So, if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted to be sponsored by a wonderful Irish company called Biosciences Limited, who are the main Thermo Fisher distributors in Ireland. And I'm so grateful to them for coming on board and sponsoring this podcast. Um, Okay, so I'm joined today by Professor Christine Losher, Professor of Immunology and Associate Dean for Research at DCU. So Christine's research focuses on harvesting the power of food and marine sources to modulate the immune system for the treatment of a wide variety of inflammatory disorders. And among the accolades I could list, uh, Christine has been named in the top 100 women in science and selected as one of the top 22 scientists to follow in 2018 by Silicon Republic. And so, yeah, thanks so much again for coming on to chat to me today, Christine. I'm really looking forward to our chat. Thanks a million, Megan. And thanks for all your podcasts so far. They've been great to listen to. So um, I feel really privileged that you've asked me to do one. So thanks a million for that. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to our chat too. Great. Well, thanks. I'm delighted I've got a listener as well as a guest on today. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I suppose I'll just start in. I'm kind of interested in, you know, where this kind of passion for science came from and and was it there from an early age? So in school, kind of were you interested in science or did you have another kind of career in mind? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I think I've always had... um, I've always had a passion for asking questions and kind of wanting to know things, but I wouldn't say in school it would have been directed at science, even though I did in my secondary school did biology and chemistry for leave insert. And I really enjoyed them, you know, and uh, I wouldn't have said at that stage, I'm going to be a scientist. And actually I would have said that my first grow was really about teaching. And I think at that stage it would have been about I'd love to be able to teach. And then, you know, when it came to it in terms of like, what was I going to do in college? I decided that because of the practical element of the biology stuff that we did, I thought it might be nice to work in a lab. It wasn't that I was like overly passionate about science or understanding how the body worked or trying to solve all the great problems of the world. It was just that kind of would be a nice job. And actually when I, when, when I ended up going to college, um, so I went to Kevin Street, went to DIT, uh, loved it there. And I signed up to do a technician diploma in applied science, which meant that I was going to train to be able to be a, a technical person who worked in a lab. Mm. And I would have said at the time that was the height of my ambition. So, you know, where I am now is not where I was aiming to be a very long time ago now. So the passion for science grew certainly through my college years where I started to, to really enjoy the lectures and the kind of, I did a, a, a my undergrad was in um, biochemistry and, and cell biology. So understanding how cells worked was kind of my flair. But the real passion was ignited by um, somebody you've already interviewed, uh, Professor Kleena O'Farley. And after I did my technician diploma in applied science, essentially they had this kind of add-on piece because back then DITs couldn't give degrees. So they had this that they, that they did. It was called a graduate ship at the Institute of Biology in London. And it was a degree equivalent. And you went back for 18 months after your technician diploma and you got a, a degree equivalent. 
And I did it because when I finished my de- technician diploma, there was no jobs. So I thought, oh, there's no jobs and I don't really want to kind of waste a year like waiting for something. So I'll do something useful in the meantime. And that was my driver for going back for this add-on piece. And I was really lucky because Jacintha Kelly, who worked in DIT at the time, um, had a really great relationship with, with Kleena O'Farley. And Kleena took in one final year student from this course uh, every year. And I was lucky enough to be able to go there. So she was based in the Education and Research Centre at the time um, out of Vincent's. And that's where I would say the ignition started and the fire started because of her, but also because of the people that worked in her group. And I saw all these people in this lab uh, trying to, to do things that nobody else had done before. And I remember asking one of them one day, like, how do you, how do you get to do this? Mm. And they said, oh, this is like you would do a PhD and you would, you know, you would do some research and then that would give you the freedom then to be able to, to pick an area of research and be able to make research your career. And I thought, God, that's a great idea. I'll do that. <laughs> and that was, that was how it started. It started with Kleena O'Farley and her group and being in the environment, you know, and I always think you need to be in it to, to experience it, to, to, to really kind of figure out it's, if it's for you. And that was a big thing for me was, was that bit of, I actually really like doing this. So how do I get to do this more? And when you were like in the group with Kleena, what was your role then as a student if you weren't kind of doing research kind of focused um, work? So they actually, so they gave me my own research project. Okay. You know, so, um, so basically what they did was they, they set me up with a couple of, of people that worked there. So Janet and Brendan was who I worked with. Um, and there was other people there that I know now in immunology. So people like Derek Doherty were in the group at the time, Laura Madrigal. And essentially they said to me, we need to be able to come up with a way of, of being able to freeze down these cells and then make sure that when we unfreeze them, that we get the best viability. So I had a little kind of a cryo project, but the cells that they let me work with were from um, cells from appendix. And at the time, a big focus of the group was trying to understand what the immune environment in the appendix was, because there was immune cells in there and actually trying to figure out what, what they were there for and, and why they were there. So they gave me my own little research question to answer. And so I kind of felt like quite important in that yeah. I'd been given a proper job to do. And they just, they just immersed me in, you know, it wasn't like, oh, you're a fourth year student now, so you just have to learn these techniques. It was, it was thrown in in the thick of it and really just given a real opportunity. That's something that I, I've brought now. I always do with my fourth years. They all get their own research question. They all get their own bit that they're trying to answer. And I think that's the most important thing you can do for a student um, who comes into that kind of environment is, is treat them like the rest of the researchers and give them their own autonomy to work on their own piece. Yeah, I think that's so important because until you are investigating for yourself and own it yourself, you're probably not going to realise if you really love it or not. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're given a research question, if you're thinking every day, God, I really want to answer this question, you know, um, oh, I've just read this paper now and they do things a different way. Maybe I should try that. If, if that's the way you are, then you're cut out for research. If you go in as a fourth year student and you're saying to your supervisor in the lab, some PhD student or postdoc, uh, what are we doing today? Then, then research is not for you, you know? Yeah. So I think the research project, a final year is a defining moment for any scientist. It is the 
this is me or this is not me. Yeah, no, definitely. And I can completely empathize with that as well. Um, and I suppose kind of, I, I completely see how you fell in love with Kleena's group and the environment there and kind of her as a person. Uh, I'm sure that was a brilliant mentor to have at such an early yeah. stage in your career. Yeah. Um, and following on from that then, did you, so you were like, okay, a PhD, I kind of want to get into this. Um, and how did you go about that? And then where did that lead you? Yeah, and I think, you know, you know, the mentorship piece there that you mentioned is really important. And so, so I finished up and I got a job in Trinity for a year and I really enjoyed it. But, it, you know, there was no, there wasn't, the way our course ended was it ended in a December because of the nature of this add-on piece. And all the PhDs had been advertised and they were all gone. You know, they all advertise over the summer and people start in September, October. So I kind of, we were left kind of a little bit in limbo time-wise. So took a job as a research assistant in Trinity, learned loads, but really affirmed that this is, even though I was in a research lab, I wasn't really doing what I wanted to be doing. And actually the mentorship of Kleena there was really important because I went back to Kleena and I said to her, I'm doing this job and, you know, I'm not really happy. And, you know, there might be a chance that it could be a PhD, but I don't really think it will be. And I really want to do a PhD and I don't want to wait around. And she said to me, okay. And she said, um, I know Kingston Mills and he's based in Maynooth. And I think he might be looking for somebody to do a PhD. And she gave me his number and I phoned him and I went to meet him and he let me do a PhD with them, you know, oh. and like, you know, so <laughs> I owe a huge amount to Kleena mm. um, because, you know, being able to go back to somebody and them being so approachable that you could go back and say, listen, I made this decision to have this job and stuff and actually I don't want it and I, I, it doesn't suit me. It's not what I want. And asking for advice about where to go next. That was probably one of the most important things I did. And then ended up doing my PhD with Kingston Mills, went out to Minute. I was there for, I did my PhD in three years. The project went really well. I did a brilliant lab there was brilliant people in the lab there was loads of postdocs with loads of expertise and to be really honest with you I would have always felt like a little bit of a fish out of water in college but when as soon as I went into Kleena's lab I felt like I belonged and that happened in Kingston's lab as well I went in there and just thought like I've I've found where I'm supposed to be and I thoroughly enjoyed my PhD. I mean, we just had so much fun. And I know PhDs aren't fun all the time. I mean, they're damn hard. But mm. it was just, it was a fantastic experience. It really was. And Kleena played a huge role in, in how I ended up there. And, and also, you know, Kingston, we went and we had an interview. We had a chat and, you know, he, um, he gave me a chance, you know, and, and I worked with him. I did a postdoctoral fellowship with himself and, and Marina Lynch in Trinity when he moved. And yeah, so I suppose once I finished with Kingston then, like I think it's important that you have a really good supervisor that you, I suppose, capitalize on that relationship and build on that relationship, you know, afterwards where possible. So I did a, I got a HRB fellowship and continued working with Kingston in on a different project in collaboration with Marina Lynch. It was in, this was when Kingston had moved into Trinity at this stage. And then Kingston would have been one of my really important collaborators when I moved on then from his group. Um, and I, I was based up in the Institute of Molecular Medicine at Trinity up at uh, St. James's Hospital. And, you know, Kingston would have been a very important collaborator when I decided to 
change tack a little bit and 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 while the immunology was my was my base science if you like um started to to move into the area of nutrition with um professor helen roach who was based up there at the time and is now in ucd so you know kingston continued to collaborate with me we still wrote papers together he was an important collaborator on the first grant i ever wrote and they ever got you know so i've been incredibly lucky with the people that have mentored me and supported me and you know the value of that in terms of how you progress in your career i can't kind of overstate enough and um, it's it's a really can be a really important piece for how you kind of get to the next stage yeah and i, I often think like what other job would you have where like a, a mentor that you had in your say early 20s is still kind of someone you go to or you know you might you work closely with or collaborate with yeah. you know later on and I think that's the science kind of community and I think immunology especially so that's what I have experience in is such a lovely community and that people are kind of there to help and collaborate and kind of bounce ideas off I don't know if you found that yeah I mean absolutely I mean one of the one of the earliest things that Kingston introduced me to was the Irish Society for Immunology and I ended up being the secretary there for a few years and uh, really immersed myself in that growth of that immunology community so saw it grow from quite small to you know quite large over over the decades that I would have been very involved with the ISI and it was always very obvious at every event that we ever had every annual meeting every interaction the sense of community and camaraderie and collegiality is something that you don't find in lots of disciplines and you just don't find in, in lots of other environments so you know we're incredibly lucky to have that and I, it's just down to it's down to the individuals and it's down to you know it's down to people like you know Kleena and and Kingston and and Luke them understanding that helping somebody progress is is it is something that's not going to impact on you know their grants or their papers or their profile or their reputation but they they have been the kind of bedrock of that growing that sense of community um, in Ireland and and why immunology is is um, the way it is because the first you know brilliant immunologists that we had in the country had those core values and they've passed them on so you know I I would like to think that I've learned a lot from Kleena in Kingston in terms of that support and mentorship and that I've been able to do that for people who've come through their PhD process and postdoc process with me and what they go on to. Um, and I'm very conscious that that's part of my role. Mm. Um, and it's only part of my role because, you know, it's always like, you know, you were, I was reared that way in immunology and therefore I will be that way with other people, you know. So we've been incredibly lucky in the community. Yeah, no, it's a really good example that was that was set kind of from from the offset. Um, and I suppose you kind of mentioned it there that you moved kind of from the, you know, immunology. And I think you were working with vaccines kind of with, with Kingston. Was that right? Or, or what was your kind so, of postdoc? Yeah, so some of the, so a lot of the, the focus on my PhD had been on the move from the Bordetella pertussis vaccine for, from whooping cough, the move from that being a whole vaccine to an acellular vaccine and looking at the neurological effects and that's why we ended up working with marina was was because she's a neuroscientist and you know i liked that mix of immunology with another discipline you know the application of immunology to another discipline and that was something that i really enjoyed and then moving on from that you know that that kind of was the core of the basis of my hrb postdoctoral fellowship and again that was a fellowship project that 
I wrote with Kingston support and mentorship and input and the same for Marina. And that was to work on that a little bit further. And then I think one of the things that's really important that I, you know, was was lucky enough to be able to, I suppose, get enough guidance and, and advice on the bit to do next is is the differentiation from where you've come from, you know? Mm. And I think that's, I think it's, again, one of those defining moments is, do you stay and do more of the same and always find it different for people to see you as being a distinct kind of scientist from where you've come from? Or do you, you know, do you do something a little bit different and take a leap of faith and, and, which sometimes it is because we're all, look, nobody wants to cut the apron strings. We're always very worried about moving away from the mentors and the supervisors and, and doing something a little bit more of, of, of you know, where we want to be and wondering whether you're doing the right thing and are you making the right choice. And, and I remember when I left Kingston's group and I left Kingston's group kind of strangely because I had the end of my postdoc uh, time with Kingston and Marina was my first maternity leave for my son and who's now nearly 18. That's a long time ago now that I was with Kingston and Marina. So um, the piece, the piece of, of me moving to a new group was not just about looking for a new area, but also it was somebody coming out of maternity leave and um, having to look for a job, you know? Mm. So, and you know, we can't kind of, you know, we all kind of look at people and think, oh, they've got to where they are because it was all perfectly planned out. And, and in lots of ways, it wasn't like I, I was unemployed. You know, I, I finished my maternity leave. It was the same time my contract with, with my fellowship finished. Mm. And I remember I went to the dole office and I had to like sign on and get the dole. And, Are you serious? and I remember thinking, oh my God, like I've been to college for like seven or eight years. And yeah. I've been like, I know so many things about science and immunology and I have so much to give and I have no job. And um, that was scary, I have yeah. to say. You know, that was, one of the, that was one of the times where I worried that if I didn't get another research position, would I have to look to something else? Mm. Um, so I, what I did at that time was I just said, okay, I apply for everything. I'll apply for absolutely everything. And when I was very lucky, I, I got a couple of interviews and I got a couple of offers. And one of those offers would have been very staunchly in, you know, the core immunology, kind of fundamental immunology space. And the other one was with a nutrigenomics group, a nutrition group, um, which were based up in the IMM, Helen Roach's group. I think part of the reason that I chose to go to Helen's group was that I saw that the nutrition piece could be a really nice piece with the immunology and obviously that's obviously grown over the last couple of decades and it's now quite a big area but at the time I think I preferred that project it suited me more because I had the neuro and the immunology and 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 I hadn't only focused on the immunology it suited me better but I would say that I would have never ended up in that space had that job not come up at the time like yeah. it wasn't that it was in my head and I said you know what it'd be a brilliant field now to be really trying to develop yeah. would be this whole thing about how your nutrition interacts with your immune system and stuff. So I think that there's an awful lot of luck along the way, you know, stuff happens very serendipitously, you know, and I always say to, to younger PhD students, you don't have to have the whole plan now. You know, I had a student who came into my office about two years ago and they said, how do I get to like, where, how do I get in there? Like to, like, how do I get to be you? And I said to them, 
Like there's no, there's no formula. There's no, I can't say this is what you do and you end up getting there. A lot of it is opportunity. It's luck. You know, I don't know where I would be if I'd have taken the other job, Mm. you know? And so I just think that you go with what you think is the right thing at the time. And if it doesn't work, you can change it. But if it does work, then you could, you know, it can really be an important part of your pathway. And that was an important part of my pathway to what I do right now. But it was because of circumstances. It was because like I was unemployed. I needed a job. There was two jobs there. I picked one, you know, so I think it's really important for people you know, who see, you see the person at the, at the prof level, you see them at the end of, of the, of the, the weird road that they've taken to get there. And we all think it's been perfectly planned and it's, you know, God, they're there and it's great. It's not, it's, it's full of kind of twists and turns and look and opportunity. And, you know, I know a lot of people who worked as hard as I did and, and, and um, didn't end up on the same road and it wasn't anything other than yeah, the people that you took advice from and, and were good influences. And, you know, and the funny thing was, I was 18 months in that role and the job came up in DCU. And, you know, I'm an Northsider, you know, I'm like, <laughs> I'd love to work in DCU. <laughs> You'd be great it's on the North side, you know, and like, I think that would really suit me and stuff. And uh, I remember, um, and again, it goes back to asking for advice, going back to people, you know, getting their views, you know, asking for help. And I remember when I got an interview in DCU, I went back to Kingston and I, I met up with him and I had a chat with him and I said to him, now look, I'm going for this job interview. And like, you know, so can you give me some advice about, cause I knew he'd be interviewing people for lectureships all the time. And, you know, and he was, he went through all of the kinds of things that come up in the interview, gave me his time, you know, whether I got that job, there was no skin off Kingston's nose. It's, mm. it again goes back to that you know, the, 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 the value that the community places on mentorship and, um, and helping others. And, uh, I remember he said really one really important thing to me that I've, I have since given as advice to other people. He said to me, don't ever say anything in an interview that you can't back up. And he said, so if you mention something and offhand, because you think it sounds good and somebody probes that and you don't know, you are going to look really bad. And I remember when I went for the interview in DCU, they had just launched this new strategic plan. And I remember thinking, I probably should have a look at that and maybe know a little bit about the university and stuff. And I remember, um, and I thought, you know, that the fact that I would know this and I would have read a bit would come across very well in the interview, you know, and um, because I'd taken all this advice on board. And I remember somebody said to me on the interview panel, why do you want to work in DCU? What is it about us and whatever? And I talked about their new strategic plan and the way they'd set out a few things. And they said, um, okay, but specifically, what do you like about our strategic plan? Oh. And I was able, I'd read it. So I, because Kingston basically told me not to mention anything that I'd ever, um, that, that, not to mention that I couldn't back up. And I remember saying, well, actually, I really like the way you've done X, Y, and Z. And I went through a bit of detail and I remember them kind of going, oh God, you've actually read it. Because most of us haven't read it. And we had a bit of a laugh about it. And I remember thinking of Kingston at that moment going, thank God he gave me that advice. Because if I'd have mentioned that off the cuff and they'd have asked me that, I would never have got that job. So yeah. there's just these nuggets of wisdom, I think, that you get from, 
from people, you know, who've gone the road before you that, you know, if, if you can ask for the help and you can ask for the advice and, and you're lucky enough to get it, it can make, it can make a huge difference, you know? So, um, and I got that job and I have been in DCU for 16 years and, and managed to work my way through the ranks, you know, um, up to full professor level, which I'm at now. And, and have still, you know, engaged with with Kingston and and clean it along the way and the research community and you know it's it's, you know, Kingston was really important in terms of me getting my first grant. He was a very important collaborator on that grant, and I know I wouldn't have got it without him. You know, so uh-huh. sometimes people when they move away from where they've come from, they think that they have to do it all on their own now, and they they can't be seen to. To be reliant. I think where you have people who are willing to work with you and and collaborate with you, that to use that has huge value and not to shy away from it and think that you have to be, you know, there's a phasing in of becoming independent, you know, yeah. it doesn't happen overnight, it takes years, you know, so um, yeah, so that was, that was my important advice from Kingston <laughs> interviews that I have given to loads of people since. Well, it's a it's a very good piece of advice, you know, because I can see how it could go so wrong if you hadn't. Oh yeah, backed, could you imagine? Yeah, yeah, backed up. But um, I suppose this is kind of a good kind of point in our conversation. So I suppose to bring in the whole area of you know nutrition and and, and then the break, the kind of merging of immunology and nutrition, and then kind of the research that you're doing now. So I suppose if you if you would maybe talk to me a little bit about the field, and then I suppose where your research uh, fits into that. Yeah, so I mean, my starting point would have been when I worked with Helen, it was very focused on um, fatty acids. And we did a lot of work on polyunsaturated fatty acids versus saturated. And really, the focus was how exactly do they interact and change an immune cell? You know, and that was that was a lot of the work then that where we started then to look at toll-like receptors and, you know, saturated fatty acids can activate toll-like receptors and what was the interaction then of all these other kind of fats? And then that started to kind of get me interested in toll-like receptors. And of course, then I went and I spoke to Luke O'Neill and we had a lovely collaboration then for a few years. And again, you know, that collaboration was, we had a, we had a, um, I had a PhD student at the time who's done exceptionally well for herself, uh, Jennifer Dowling. And she um, was the PhD student who worked on that particular project I approached Luke, asked about collaborating. Of course, Luke is, again, one of these wonderful people in immunology that just is all about the science. Mm. Um, so, so, of course, we collaborated together. And, you know, we had a couple of publications and Jennifer ended up then, her postdoc, she went to Luke, did a brilliant postdoc, went to Monash, has come back on a Marie Curie and, and is just, has done, has just paved out this wonderful path for herself. And, and again, it's, you know, collaboration, asking the question, you know, not being afraid to use what's in the community. So, you know, that the whole area of nutrition for me then became about how anything nutritionally um, of any nutritional value um, might be able to impact on the immune response. And I started to move away a little bit from fatty acids and start to look at, at other sources, you know, and... Um, those sources then became um, ex- quite exploratory in nature. So like the last, so about 10 or 12 years ago, 
I became part of Food for Health Ireland, which was the dairy industry, which was all about dairy hydrolysates. And that's been a huge focus for me for the last 10 years and very much kind of an education for the food industry in in the whole role of the immune system and health overall. So how does your immune status contribute to your overall health? How does poor immune status, I suppose, lead down the road to being a trigger for activation of other types of, of diseases, whether that's diabetes or, or um, inflammatory disease. Being able to kind of, I suppose, develop within that consortium, develop the idea that we might be able to find things that manipulate the immune response for benefit from food. And, and we're at the stage now where we've, we've got these milk hydrolysates um, from, from extensively hydrolyzed milk proteins that now the industry, the dairy industry have backed for a translation project, which is going into human intervention trials. So, you know, that, that took 10 years though. That took 10 years to kind of take a, an idea and get, a co- get four companies on board t- with an idea to be able to, to translate something. So one of the biggest, I suppose, focuses that I have is, is not just about the understanding of how these things work, but, but how do we use them in the real world? So um, the translation piece is huge for me. And dairy was a really important source. And again, that was, you know, that came up because the milk quotas changed and the dairy industry decided, what are we going to do with all the milk? We need to find something else we could do with it. So they started this program of research to figure that out. And I became part of it. So, you know, again, that wasn't the plan, you know, at any yeah. stage, it, it just developed over time. And then the other side of it was, was I was lucky enough to kind of tap into like strange kind of funding at the time with the Marine Institute and started to look at marine sources and worked on this project for a really long time. And again, with the focus on how do I translate this into something that would benefit, you know, a person and, and managed to do a, bring that all the way through to preclinical of um, a, a topical cream for atopic dermatitis which we're still kind of at the stage where we're exploring partnerships with companies in terms of the next steps. So my work has, my immunology has become very applied, you know, so when I'm, when I'm asking my research questions, I'm asking them in the context of the endpoint. So I'm, I'm not as focused on, even though we have worked out the mechanisms for these things, I'm not as focused on whether that mechanism contributes to our further understanding of fundamental immunology. But what I am interested in is, how do I use the activity of that hydrolysate, that marine um, bioactive? How do I use that in a real world setting for good? And that's, that is really what I've developed over the last kind of 15 years at DCU is that niche area of, can we use this to benefit a person? You know, so, mm. and because of that, my, the applications have become quite broad, which in some ways to other people might look that my research is not focused the core tenet is the same. It's just the application areas are quite different. So the human trial that we have at the moment is very much about an anti-inflammatory, suppresses gut inflammation, the possibility of that being important as people age and gut inflammation is an issue, but also in patients that have, um, we'll say low-grade IBD, and we're doing a clinical study um, to be able to look at that. But the other projects that I have with some of the companies are actually around hydrolysates that have real power in switching off allergic responses. And now we've got this whole space that's, that's kind of now emerged in this 
anti-TH2 response and very much applied in allergy, which is very different. So the application areas are quite different. The sources of where we're finding these bioactives are different. And a lot of the focus for me has become about using nutritional sources to mine for new things that might end up helping somebody, you know? So the focus with FHI is obviously their ingredient companies. So it's about novel ingredients. Um, and we're expanding that now. Just in the last um, couple of weeks, we've finalized a project with these food companies in the area of immune health um, in terms of new fermentates. So there's a lot of stuff now about fermentates out there at the moment about how good they are. And it's really about, it needs scientific evidence to really back that up and really position that really well in terms of translation. So that's kind of our role now with those companies over the next couple of years. Um, sorry, this might be a silly question, but what is a fermentate? So essentially, like they're fermented using different bugs, essentially. So like, you know, the, the over-the-counter stuff you can buy now, the, the, the kefirs and the, you know, the drinks that are all fermentated drinks. So the sugars in it have been fermentated over time by different combinations of bacteria. And that fermentation process releases bioactives or, you know, components that we not necessarily understand right now, but that can have health benefits. So again, it's, it's like how a lot of stuff kind of arises that there's this anecdotal evidence that certain populations or cohorts of people, you know, have a particular nutritional intake and they have a particular health benefit because of it. That's how the whole research area starts on fish oils. It was all to do with anecdotal evidence that people who lived in, in uh, countries where there was high intakes of, particular, of fish, for example, so Japan, the Eskimos, all those kind of things, their health status looked very different because of the fact that they had a different nutritional intake. And that was the anecdotal evidence that got that whole field started. So, you know, the, the fermentates is, an, is a new piece and it's very much about understanding what types of fermentates will give you what bioactivity in the body. So is there impact on, you know, metabolic function? Mm. I'm interested in immune status. There's going to be an awful lot of work on gut health. So, you know, again, um, and this is where companies have been hugely important in research in that they've posed questions where there's an end product or, you know, somebody might, a consumer will say, um, and we've been able to kind of take that, take the science route then to be able to get, to get it there. And, you know, that's a kind of good example of how applied my research has become. So I've moved very much away from the fundamental understanding and very much into the application space. I still would have had a huge grow for the fundamental stuff around. I did a lot of work around C. difficile for a long time mm. and published some really nice stuff in that space. And even though I really enjoyed it, it was very hard to get funding in. And again, this is an awful lot of how, what dictates how your research develops, what funding is available. And when I, when I was developing my research group, Ireland went through a major transition into applied research and industry involvement and you know, every single scheme, whether it was from SFI or otherwise, needed this industry involvement piece. And I had to develop my research in that way in order to be able to ensure that I could get funding and, and do research. So, you know, it's not always what's in your head mm. that, that ends up directing your research path. A lot of it is influenced by the external environment, you know, down to when I finished my technician diploma, I couldn't get a job 
down yeah. to my postdoc choice was because I was unemployed, down to I loved my C. difficile work, I loved my nutritional work, but there was a lot more funding available in the application space with the nutrition piece. And that really then became the dominant part of my group. However, the stuff I learned with C. difficile and all the technologies and all the expertise in understanding gut immunology and the cells in the gut, I've now brought into that nutrition space. So it's never a waste. It's mm. just, you know, trying to use things in the way that, that benefits, that benefits the research the most. So a lot of it, it's, you know, it's not, it's not predefined. It, it happens, it evolves over time. And sometimes opportunities come up and you just take them and it works out, you know, but I've had loads of grants that have been rejected and I've had loads of papers that have been rejected and I've had loads of great ideas and none of them work. <laughs> You know, and that's all, that's all fine. It's just not the stuff that we talk about. Exactly. You know? Yeah, exactly. I know. And, and I think a lot of people I've talked to like that seems to be the most frustrating part of academia is the grant writing and you think it's the best idea in the world and suddenly someone, three people on a panel think it's not. <laughs> you know? And then every so often, I mean, I did remember submitting one grant and I kind of thought, oh, I don't know if, you know, I'll put it in because I know it's well written, but, you know, I'm not really sure it's the kind of, you know, the sexiest type of project on the planet. Yeah. And, and it got funded. And that was probably the most surprising project. And I kind of went, they, they actually, okay, great. Absolutely. Every so often you get that. Every so often you put in a paper and they say, yeah, no, do you know what? Minor revisions, that's in. And you're going, really? Wow, that's great. And then the ones you think are the best papers that you've done everything for, you get three reviewers who all hated it and who want you to write a different paper and you just go, oh, I totally read that wrong. And then, then it's like, so for every grant that you write, the piece that's kind of so subjective is who reviews it and what they think. And then every paper you write, if they sent to a different reviewers, it might've got into that journal and now they're sent to these and they didn't. There's a huge amount of that. That's what's so frustrating about research is that you know, a lot of it is very subjective to individuals and mm. their views. And, you know, that's something that you have no control over, which is really hard because everybody has had a grant where they've had three reviewers and two loved it and one hated it. And because one hated it, you didn't get it. Yeah. And you're like, what about the two who loved it? Um, why aren't they more important than the person who hated it? You know, but it's like as soon as somebody throws a shadow of doubt on something. Yeah. Sometimes be the difference between you getting something and not. So, you know, you develop a resilience to be able to not take it personally, and and you just say, okay, well, you know, we didn't get that, you know, but we'll get the next one. So, grant writing is, yeah, it's a it's a tough road because it's it's one that you have to constantly be on. Can't really take a break from it because the impact on your research group is huge. So, there's an awful lot of pressure sometimes to have this continuous supply of funding coming in and, and the worry about what would happen if some of the grants didn't come through and how that impacts on the individuals in your group. So that's probably one of the hardest parts that I find in, where, in, in the role that I have. Yeah, no, and, and I think that kind of seems to be echoed with many other PIs that I've spoken to recently. Um, and I suppose, just want to kind of go back a little bit with the bioactives and these molecules that you're kind of mining from milk or dairy products and then the marine products. I think you kind of touched it there, but is that to 
dampen inflammatory effects? Are these, are you trying to find specifically anti-inflammatory molecules that we could maybe supplement our food with? Yeah. So that was, that would have been one of the main focuses. Um, I suppose as stuff developed in Food for Health Ireland, the ingredient companies have huge business in terms of infant formula. So in the infant formula space, we would have looked at allergenicity as, as a huge part, as well as the inflammatory piece. But for most of the projects that I've done, there's always been a core focus on something that's anti-inflammatory that blocks immune responses. Some of the stuff that we've done with the topical cream, for example, uh, we were able to show um, a very specific anti-inflammatory response only blocked when specific toll-like receptors were activated. We were able to uncover the mechanism down to the protein that didn't get phosphorylated in the pathway. And, and that was really nice because the specificity gave it a little bit of a uniqueness um, in terms of the fact that, for example, it didn't, it didn't impact on, on all of the toll-like receptor viral responses, for example. So you could still maintain a normal immune response to viruses. Um, and that's one of the problems with biologics for, that are anti-inflammatory. They blanketly block the immune system or they take something out that impacts on other, other kind of immune pathways that are important to maintain. So I'm interested in kind of things that are a little bit different, that do things differently, you know, and, and the mechanistics of that was really important. And actually it was another project that Luke O'Neill became involved in, in terms of, of uncovering that exact mechanism because it was downstream of mal. But the, the main focus has been anti-inflammatories. And we know because inflammation is the underlying driver of so many other diseases, of so many other physiological systems, that, you know, being able to focus on that piece is really important. And the aging piece has become very important. And we, 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 we increase our, our low-grade inflammation as we age. And, and it's a predisposition factor for so many other things then after that. So, you know, good immune health and a positive immune status where inflammation is controlled is a really important is a really important health thing for everybody i think we see that more so now than ever with covid-19 um you know i know that underlying conditions are a huge factor in terms of how sick people become but there's a lot of situations where people don't have underlying disorders and they've succumbed to really severe illness and I think a huge part of that is down to the fact that we probably don't understand enough about the immune status of people in Ireland. We don't know, like I don't, I don't know sitting here whether you or me, Megan, have a brilliant immune system, mm. you know, because it's not something that, you know, apart from getting some blood counts and stuff done or circulating CRP, it's not something that you can really probe into. But, but it's a chance to educate people about the value of immune health. Um, and for me in the field that I'm in around nutrition, it's a real opportunity to try and figure out nutritionally what gives you the best immune status. And we've already figured some of that out, but, you know, is there other things that we can put into diet that will, that will help with that? Um, so I think immunology is, is really prominent at the moment. Everybody understands their immune systems now are really important. And I think the fact that food companies have come on board and funded a project in that immune space um, to understand immune health a bit better is is a good indication that that there's potential now to develop that a little bit more in that applied translational space. So yeah, I think it's an interesting time for an immunologist. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, you know, the whole immunology is such a hot topic, but also the whole kind of 
nutrition and, and a, you know, if you think about the last 10 years, we've got, you know, everyone's gluten free and everyone's, you know, organic and whole foods and stuff like that. And I actually watched the talk that you did and you were saying in the future, could we have kind of shopping aisles where it's like, this yeah. food will kind of benefit your cardiovascular health. This food will benefit your immune health. And do you think that's kind of, is that futuristic or do you think we're not too far yeah. off? I mean, like, so that was, yeah, so that was my TEDx talk that, yeah, like that I'm very proud of, but absolutely was bricking it for the whole time that I did it because, uh, you know, because it's immortalized on YouTube forever <laughs> um, and they don't edit it at all. But, you know, the whole the whole idea there was that, the value of understanding how nutrition impacts, it interacts with every single physiological system that you have, but predominantly the immune system. The future is that we can, you know, come up with a series of nutritional foods um, or interventions that will impact on the immune system in a particular way that will change your susceptibility to all these other disease states. So, we do know that there are certain foods that are good for your cardiovascular system or your cardiovascular health. We know there's lots of foods and fish oils that are very good for cognitive function and, and your, your, your neural health. Um, we know that you know, there's a huge amount of work done down in APC on gut health and mm. you know, the, the whole area of, of probiotics and, and the gut and the, the gut microbiota and the importance of that. And you know, that, that's kind of, you know, the fermentate stuff has kind of grown out of that a little bit. Um, that we understand more now that the bottom line is that your immune status impacts on your overall health status because it interacts with so many other systems. One of the projects that I have at the moment with a PhD student is looking at how immune function and the presence of certain immune cells impacts on muscle function, muscle recovery in athletes, muscle maintenance in older adults. So you know, I'm interested in, in how that immune system crosstalk interacts with the other physiological systems and how we can make that better, how we can piggyback on, on all the, the positive things that can happen because of manipulating the immune system in the right way. So if you've got an aller allergic response, if we can switch off a Th2, you know, response, then how would that immune manipulation impact on the overall health status of an individual? So you know, I, I think that while it's futuristic to think that, you know, that kind of shopping experience might be such that you could go down an aisle and have like a whole load of stuff here. That's good for your brain. That's good for your gut. That's good for your mm. heart. Realistically, we already, we could already have tiny aisles where you could have those things in there because we do know that there are things scientifically proven that have worked. I think there's so much more out there that we don't know about um, so we could fill those aisles over the next couple of decades yeah. with more things that we know are positive. I mean, down to the stuff that you look at the stuff that Anya Kelly does now in Trinity, that Brendan Egan does in DCU. If you look at activities that impact on the immune system, you now look at exercise, you look at lifestyle. You know, it's not just food is only one part of it. Everything else that we do you know, I think we're beginning to understand that every single thing that we do every day impacts on immune health. Um, and I think that understanding that more and being able to being able to understand uh, what we need to measure to figure out what somebody's immune status is, apart from the things, the standard norms that we mm. know already, trying to figure that out and then trying to figure out what are the things that can manipulate those those numbers to where we want them to be. And then how does that impact on somebody's overall health? I mean, that's, that's the goal, if you like, 
in mm. my mind in terms of how the power of immunology can actually impact on, on every individual's health, as opposed to the way sometimes immunology has been positioned in the last few years. It's about disease. It's about, yeah. it's about infection. It's about disease. It's about you know, people who have dysregulated immune responses. It's people who are autoimmune. It's people who have allergies. We're looking at you know, the immune system an awful lot in terms of how it functions the wrong way and I suppose the focus for me has always been yeah that's great and that's I think that gives you an amazing understanding of what a what the immune system looks like in the good scenario and the bad scenario and then what we need to do is find things that bring it from that bad scenario back into the good scenario so that manipulation of immune responses that modulation Mm. is the core of what I'm interested in and it's the core tenet that runs through every single project that I do is that idea of immunomodulation, um, which I think has huge power and huge potential. Yeah, and I think it's important to have kind of two, the two sides of the coin and yeah. that people working on the disease and yeah. the dysfunction, but then also people working on, like you say, immunomodulation. And actually, you know, what you're talking about there, that the immune system impacts so many different aspects of life. And actually, I'm thinking about, you know, the people I may have interviewed in the podcast, and it's nearly become a mini immunology series just uh, by chance, because, you know, I had Annie Kirschus on talking about it, the immune system and sleep and circadian rhythm. Yeah. You know, I've had, you know, Andy Hogan and other people talking about, you know, how obesity and having that, you know, weight burden can impact your immune yeah. system and then yeah. yourself. So it is, I think the whole area is fascinating because there's so many different avenues you can go down, yeah. you know. As I, as I said to some of my PhD students, when we started to kind of see how important the immune system was in everything, I said to them, you'll never be out of a job now as an <laughs> because now there has been this realization that the immune system and issues with the immune system impacts on every single other system that you have in your body. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, and just, you know, I know Andy Hogan's work on obesity space and he does brilliant work. And, and now, isn't it really, you know, isn't it really important to note that, that the mortality rate in people who got COVID-19 or obese mm. um, was huge. Their mortality rate was way higher. And that's because obesity has changed their immune system to the stage that their response to their virus was so different that made them severely ill and they died. And it's, you know, it's those connections that we're making now all the time that is just all the time giving more value to the role of the immune system and how it works. And I think that, you know, there was a paper that came out in Nature a few weeks ago showing that um, I think eosinophils uh, decreased in, in older adults and, and there was a huge correlation between that and frailty and all of the other things, you know, and they were kind of saying, why are their eosinophils low? What can we give them that will boost their eosinophils? So, you know, in every single problem that we see physiologically in somebody, you can nearly trace it back now to, to something to do with their immune system. So I think immunology has become a much more important field of research than it ever was. And I think that there's great opportunity within that field to develop it in a way that intersection with all those other fields, I feel are, are the real areas of potential at the moment to be able to develop those further. People like Marina Lynch have been doing that for years. She's been working at this neuroimmune space in the neuroimmunology space for years I think that there's loads of really good examples of working at that interface, but I think there's huge value and huge importance in terms of our understanding of 
human health um, mm. by working at those interfaces. Yeah, no, I actually uh, recorded my uh, an interview with Marina Lynch there recently. So oh, she'll she's, be... she's an inspiration. She's fantastic. I loved working with her. <laughs> yeah, she, she's uh, she's gas. I loved I loved our chat. Yeah. Um, and I, I suppose I'm also I, we kind of touched on it earlier. You know, the frustration and the kind of, I suppose, the the track of academia and, and maybe as a PI, like, you know, looking back and what do you find is the most, I suppose, exciting part of your job and why you love research? And then on the kind of opposite side, you know, you'd be touched on grant writing and stuff there and rejection. But what is the most frustrating part as well? Then, Yeah, I mean, I mean, while the grant writing and stuff is very frustrating, you know, the other the other part is that, you know, while we are all driven very much by our research, as a PI, for the most part, we're all in academic positions and our role is to teach, is to share our knowledge. And while I would say for the most part, we all love that, it does mean that you have these two passions of teaching and research and you haven't got enough time for either. You yeah. know, so, so the restriction on your time and trying to divide your time is a challenge. And I find that a huge challenge because I could never see myself not doing either of them. And, and yet sometimes we're asked to choose which one do you want to do more of, you know, so that, that is a challenge um, apart from the grant writing and the rejection and the, you know, all the kind of, you know, oh God, I didn't get this. And it, it is horrible. Um, but I think, you know, mo- most of us scientists developed a thick skin and, you know, you just, you just move on to the next one, you know. The pieces that I love most about the research the days that I love most and have loved most in my research career are the days that I have seen my PhD students graduate. They are the most special days for me. And I, I have missed one PhD student's graduation, Kira's, and it was because I was in early labor. I just couldn't go to her graduation. And I, fair. <laughs> I was like robbed of the day. You know, there's nothing better than to have a job where you take somebody who comes to you with a passion for research and you see them develop over the three or four years into this brilliant scientist who, by the end of their project, they were running the show and they were looking for the answers and, and you just took a little bit of a backseat and, and let them go. And I, I think that's, that's given me immense job, like job satisfaction in terms of a, a, a being a PI and being in research. Those are the things that that I love the most. The thing that drives me the most is the thought of having something out there in the real world that makes somebody's life better, easier, healthier. That's the driver for me. Mm. That is that is the biggest driver. I mean, if I if I ever got to the stage where um, and we're quite close on some of these things that we have in commercialization, where they put something that I worked on into something that product or a food or whatever it was that impacted on, on and helped people, that would be for me kind of the holy grail piece. That would be job done. Like, you know, I've done something that's helped somebody. Yeah. Like, therefore, therefore I have succeeded in research. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, and I keep in touch with all my PhD students and where they go on to and what they do. And sometimes they come back for advice, which I'm like, you know, delighted about because you know, I kind of think that's a good indication you've done a good job as a supervisor. You know, the days when they come in and they're so ecstatic because they've got a graph of something that they've been wanting the answer to for years is, you know, they're all, they're all really good days, you know, and they're all the bits that, that would make you think you'd never do another job in your life. 
there's a lot of joy in research. There's a lot of good stuff. It outweighs all that grant stuff and the papers and the, you know, everything else. There's a lot of really good stuff and, and it's, it's all about people. Mm. And I, I kind of want to touch a little bit uh, on, I suppose, being a woman in science and how you find that. And I know you were quite influential in, you know, DCU just named, I think, half their buildings with, on, on influential women. And I'm just going to want to ask a, a little bit about that. And also, I suppose, family life and academia, because uh, we, we just spoke before we came on there, you know, that you're about to go on maternity leave again. And, you know, how how kind of that plays a part. And do you find that women are at a little bit of a disadvantage or do you just, you know, t- take it on kind of thing? So, I mean, I think, look, there's been a huge amount of of coverage of the women in science piece in the last, like I've seen a huge amount of it, particularly in the last five, six, seven years. And I think that the most important piece of that is that for people who are coming behind us, that they are able to see that no matter whether you're a man or a woman, you can succeed. And I think like for me, it's, it, it's really about the take-home message. The take-home message for me, every time we highlight a female in science who's done well or a female in any realm that's done well is just about giving the message that your gender doesn't matter and mm. it shouldn't matter. And I think that's what it's really about for me. So where there have been opportunities, whether it was to get involved with things like Girls Hack Ireland or, you know, women in STEM or anything that I, I contribute to or any kind of talks that I've given have all been about the fact that your gender shouldn't be a consideration and it and in lots of ways what we don't want to happen is we don't want people to get too hung up on it so that they it's very easy to for people to use that as an excuse so mm. we just have to make sure that we're empowering women and that the message is about that whatever you want to do is possible and your gender should never hold you back i think the universities have kind of stepped up and and taken on board over the last few years with the Athena Swan initiative, that they're creating an environment where it is very visually obvious that there is a fairness approach in terms of that there shouldn't be any impact, you know? And I think that that's become very obvious. I think there's been initiatives. So if you look at things like one of our biggest funders, SFI, when there's certain schemes running, they don't make sure that there's enough women getting the awards. What they do is they make sure that there's enough women applying, you know? So an awful lot of this doesn't come down to women don't get stuff. It's that women don't feel empowered enough and have the confidence and the support to be able to go for things because the old adage that people used to always say is, you know, a woman reads a job ad and sees, you know, 10 things and she only has eight of them. And she goes, no, I'll just go off now and I'll work on those two things. And, a man looks at the job and he sees three things he can do and he goes, sure, I'll just go in for it anyway. And, and, and you know, that, that is a story that was told to me over and over again, like when I was younger. And you kind of go, we just, we have a different mindset. We are different. There are skill sets that we have that give us an advantage in certain, in certain areas. And there are other characteristics that are viewed negatively in women that are viewed positively in men. And, and while it is going to take a very long time for that perception and those kind of things to change in society, I think that the most important thing is that we're told that we can. And I think that's, that's what it's all about for me. Everything I've ever done is, is about telling people 
that they can, that there's reasons why it might impact on the outcome, but there is no reason why you shouldn't go down that road in the first place, you know? And, and I think that, you know, when you look across the scientific community and you see really senior people like Kleena and like Marina who have literally pulled half of the female research community up behind them, Uh then, you know, it is about mentorship. It's about role models and it's about looking at people and saying, yeah, no, it is possible. You can do that. You know, so that's what I think the most important thing about highlighting women in science is, is about that message that it gives to other people. And of course, look, there is no doubt I have come up against discrimination. I have been in situations where I know that it is because I am a woman. You know, someone said to me, the best revenge is success. You either get up and you do something about it Mm. and you say, I can and I did. Or you become immersed in it and you feel and you take that discrimination and, and and it begins then to define who you are and you think you're battling against the world, you know. So I think a lot of it is just how you how you view it. And, and my, my way of life is that when you take something that knocks you, you turn it into determination and you show them, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, I'm not just going to apply for this. I'm going to get it. And, and there's been lots of things along the way where, you know, my success then when I have been able to get something over the line, it empowers me in a way then that I've kind of gone, despite the fact that, you know, somebody else told me I couldn't do it. I did, you know, yeah. and that, Spurs you on. And some of the biggest role models I, I have had have been male. You know, I mean, Kingston's played a huge part and Kingston didn't care whether I was a man or a woman. Kingston cared that I was a passionate, enthusiastic scientist. So, you know, there's been male mentors that have paid huge, played huge part in females who've been successful. So, you know, it's down to the individuals, you know, and I don't focus on gender too much. And, and I don't agree with kind of, you know, tokenism and kind of people get yes. things just because they're a woman. And, and that's the perception, you know. I think we're aiming for a situation where the best person gets the job and it doesn't really matter who they are. Mm. But yeah, like I've I've had some, you know, experiences which haven't been pleasant, but you know, I've kind of, I've made my, I've made my point by getting to where I am. And yeah, I mean, you can say, look, look at me now, you know, you know, I haven't done too badly for somebody who maybe 10 years ago, somebody was telling I couldn't do something. So, you know, I kind of have like, and I did. So yeah kind of the way that I would like to see women spur, it should spur them on as opposed to knock them back. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and kind of, so it's one of my, my last questions, which I ask everyone now, is if you weren't in science, uh, if you weren't a scientist, where do you think your life would have ended up? Um, Good. What do you think you would be doing now? I don't even, oh, I don't even know if I have an answer to that. <laughs> um, my thinking is very strategic in nature and I think that help, has helped in terms of my career progression. So something that would have been about like a lot of the stuff I do as the associate dean for research is about driving large scale initiatives and getting people together and getting them focused on the same idea and developing it and trying to you know I do a huge amount of my job as as the associate dean for research is about doing things that benefit other people I think a a role where I you know strategic role somewhere where I'm trying to get people to work together on projects probably would be where I would use my skill set, but I, I couldn't name a job. I couldn't, <laughs> okay. even, I, I couldn't even think of a job that I would ever yeah. do. It's it funny. It's funny to think about that. If you, you know, if you haven't ever thought of it before. Um, I mean, like I always thought like, oh, I'd love to be a doctor, but then sure, I couldn't give anybody bad news. I'd be terrible yeah. at it. So, you know, I think I'd be really good at like looking after people and I'd be a good diagnostic kind of person, but 
I think if it came to like people being really sick, I don't think I could cope with that. So I think I would have made a rubbish doctor. But um, well, I think this all just means that you are in the perfect job. You know, if yes. you can't, if you can't yes. think of anything. And the thing is, like, we're like I'm incredibly privileged. I love my job. Like mm. I don't like correcting exams. I have to say that that is the one thing that if you took that away from me, I wouldn't blink. Yeah, don't like correcting exams just because I feel sorry for the students and God love them and they're trying so hard and oh God, I know. But uh, yeah, I am very privileged that I can hand on heart say I love my job and I'm, and I'm very lucky that I have the job that I have, you know, and, and the thing is, you know, people kind of say, oh God, like, you know, like she did really well and she's a great job and you're kind of going, like, I went to, I went to college when I was 18 and like, I am like nearly 30 years later in the job that I love. Yeah. Took all that time to get there. So I think we just need to all be cognizant of the fact that, you know, roles evolve over time and things take time and there's no, there's no plan. There's no rush. There's no timeline. You just have to know what you're passionate about and what you want to do. And you just have to let that take you wherever it goes. Ask for advice. Use people who are good mentors and role models in the right way. Don't be afraid of failure. If this interview was about failure, I could have easily failed the 35 or 40 <laughs> failures in my life, Megan. So I have lots of that. But, you know, I, I just think that and nothing should hold you back, you know, and, and having a life outside, you know, you mentioned just that there about, about the life thing. You know, I have I have three children and I have another one on the way. Mm-hmm. She will hopefully be here in a few months. And, you know, like I'm a soccer mom, I stand on the sidelines, I'm in the gymnastics club, I have to go to those fetches for Irish dancing. I do all of that stuff. And, you know, you, you, can, you can have both if, if you want, you know, yeah. and, and don't let anybody or anyone's stereotypes or preconceived kind of ideas hold you back. Just, you know, be your own mind and, and do what you want, really. Well, I mean, I think that is a wonderful note to end our conversation. I mean, I could sit here now for another few hours chatting to you. Uh, But yeah, thanks again. Thanks so much for coming on and chatting to me. You're so welcome, uh, Megan. And thanks a million for for chatting to me and um, asking me questions that I probably haven't thought about for a very long time. And, And just even the opportunity to, you know, if someone listens to this and there's, you know, it's like that conversation I had with Kingston. There was one big take home message that I felt was very important there's one thing that I said today that actually somebody kind of thinks, God, that's important and it helps. Then Mm. that's, I think, a huge value in what you're doing, Megan, is that these stories and little tidbits of information and all these things can actually make a big difference in, in, in somebody's life and and their choices and their, you know, uh, what they might do next. So I think that, and there's lots of interesting things that I've heard in these podcasts already. So (laughs) I hope it's useful to somebody. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.